Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, uh, actually not sitting in my car for once. I'm sitting in my bedroom at home. And joining me on the Zoom line are Tim McIntosh and Heidi White, my old friends. Tim, Heidi, how's it going? Welcome back. Thank you, David. It's going great. I'm really happy that you're not in your car right now. Though the might... chance of you seeing wildlife is a little slimmer, I mm-hmm. guess. That mm-hmm. was exciting. Well, I'm looking out my back window and we are surrounded by some trees and stuff. Uh, so we may see, I'll, I will at least see birds and squirrels. I'm pretty confident of that. And possibly the, my children when they get home, who probably will start running around the backyard like wild wildlife and wild, wild creatures. Hey, Tim, are you, um, are you back home yet? Or are you still no. braving, braving the basement? Still braving the basement. I just took a picture. I've now developed a stand-up desk, which is the dryer in the laundry room basement. <laughs> so this would be a good time then to turn on video and record the whole thing this vi- would be a as great a video time conversation. For like, I, you can't yeah. really imagine a more dank situation for recording. <laughs> I mean, I could think of a few. Like, imagine you know the you know the prison that the guy in the Count of Monte Cristo got thrown in for a long time. Ooh. Like, if that had power and Wi-Fi, that would be more dank. The tunnel that leads to Mount Doom in the two <laughs> towers might be a bit more dank. That's the kind of wildlife that you can expect to see if you're in Tim's situation. Or the yep, the, and the, Shelob. The, <laughs> the, <laughs> I forgot <laughs> Shelob. <laughs> The Underground from Notes from the Underground. Ooh. Oh, there you go. Dostoevsky reference. I like yeah. it. Gosh, I wish that we could do a Dostoevsky book. Oh, wait, we are. Which, right? which actually is a good transition because it gives me a chance to remind people that we uh, have the, uh, the bonus crime and punishment conversations that are, that are happening right now. And as a matter of fact, as soon as I'm done recording here, I will be uploading the newest episode to Patreon. So if you head over to patreon.com slash reads you will be able to access those bonus podcasts if you are uh, a subscriber, if you're supporting the show that way. Uh, you know, you're also getting that sweet show swag if you're doing that. Uh, don't forget, you can follow along and join the conversation on social media, on Facebook. You can join the Close Reads Podcast discussion group on Instagram. You can follow us at Close Reads Pods. And you can follow the newsletter at closereads.substack.com. Uh, there has been... Lots of great conversation on the Facebook page about Anne of Green Gables. And of course, we are here to answer your questions about Anne of Green Gables. I got to say, I'm a little sad to be done. Yeah. Know, right. When we first started working through the book, I was thinking, man, I really stretched this out. <laughs> um, and then I started feeling glad that we did that as far as the schedule goes because of you know this strange quarantine quarantine. <laughs> and um, nice. so it was a good, you know, I think it was good timing fortuitous providential timing to be reading Anne of Green Gables as this strange time was happening. Up next is Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. And I'm not so sure that that that, that timing is as providential <laughs> or at least as beneficial. I guess all timing is providential, no. Um, but uh, that it's not. maybe it's going to be a little more dour. When I posted the image on Instagram with the schedule, the reading schedule, there were some, you know, can't wait to be depressed comments. Um, <laughs> A common response to Graham Greene books. And yet, I think that there'll be some great conversations. Um, the Power and the Glory uh, series was one of our more popular ones. And I think that the end of the affair conversations will be really good as well. And next week, we will kick off that by, uh, by um, talking about book one of, of Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. So if you haven't started that, then now's your chance to do so. And I have to say, I think there bit. might be a tie-in, David, like one of the crucial moments in that book, I won't give anything away, happens during, after... Is it uh, happened in a dank place? Shelter. It happens in a dank place in hmm. a 
is it in a bombing shelter or like returning from a bombing shelter during the Nazi blitz of London? So just that's it's certainly a bomb shelter following. adjacent. It's definitely bomb shelter adjacent. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is some, there are lots of, there are lots of bombs dropped in that book. That's, that is very true. So next week we will kick off that conversation, uh, talking about book one and we will uh, have that up on, uh, one week from today, which is uh, May 5th. Okay. Let's talk about, uh, some questions relating to Anne of Green Gables. Uh, there were plenty of whimsical questions. Tim, Tim was mentioning before we started recording that there were, that the questions fit the book, which I think is, you know, uh, makes sense given given our, our listenership uh, and the close reads community. Um, I want to start with one though that is uh, neither whimsical nor what's the opposite of whimsical? Dower, unwhimsical. <laughs> Dower, yeah. Uh, somebody asked on the Instagram page if any of us have seen and have any thoughts about the Anne with an E series on Netflix because we've talked a lot about the classic one that you know Canadian television did back in the 80s which we're going to talk about in conjunction with the last dance in May but have either of you seen the Netflix series because I have not seen it Tim I'm going to assume you have not seen it no I have not seen it no so i if i love a book i have i will absolutely not watch any adaptation of it before nice. i get feedback from mm-hmm. various sources. So That's fair. The, the, you know, like the little women, I was, I had my doubts about it. And to be honest, I still haven't seen it because I'm reading it aloud to Lucy right now. And we've agreed not to watch the movie till we're through the read aloud. Um, but I can't wait to see it because I've gotten so much positive feedback, including from the two of you. But when it first was announced, I was like, I don't know. Uh, so I, have heard next to nothing about Anne with an E that would indicate that it is worth Hmm. seeing as a fan of the book as it is written. So I don't plan on watching it. So I can't comment, but my under I'm going to anyway, my um, (laughs) understanding, my understanding from what I've read and heard from people who have seen it is that it's a very modern adaptation uh, in, in that they f- try to make it more realistic. Like they take the capital R romantic element out of it and try to make it so that Anne is a typical traumatized child. Huh. And they focus, like they have written this whole backstory about her life before that then is brought into her experience in Avonlea. Um, and I don't think as a plot point, like I said, I haven't seen it. I don't think it's as meaning that those people come to Avonlea, but that her her experience of trauma informs the story way more. And so does everybody else's, you know, Matthew hmm. and Merla and everybody too. So they're trying to like make it gritty is my understanding. Sounds like a different book. Um, yeah, so I would say that in some ways <laughs> well, you know. violates the soul of the story. And that is troubling to me because I love it and because I'm actually just frankly really tired of modern adaptations trying to make everything gritty. Like that's fine sometimes, but I'm kind of over that. And there's so I just am not interested in watching it. But like I said, I haven't seen it. So maybe somebody can convince me to see it, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let's let's dive into uh, the questions that were posted here. Um, should we start with Jesse Browns or no? 
Let's start with Jesse Brown's. Only if Tim answers it first. Has there ever been a cuter boy than Gilbert Blythe and why not? Okay, I have an answer for this and I'm actually afraid <laughs> that no one is going to like it. So the answer is no, um, as the question requires. But let me just kind of point out something that's a little <laughs> bit... Uh, that I think that not many people want to hear. I'm like a, an Anne of Green Gables truther all of a sudden. Um. There is no boy that is shooter than Gilbert Blythe. And Gilbert Blythe has about five lines in the entire book. Mm-hmm. True. Well, like this, I, I believe that oftentimes the, that is a stipulation for cuteness, I, is it not? I am afraid it is. <laughs> Can you go well, on? I, I kind of just want I mean, that. Just I just want talking. that to kind of like sit for a little while. Like yeah, yeah. Right. I don't feel like I should. I feel like I feel like Tim and I have both implied certain mean certain realities that we don't we shouldn't have to explain right now. All right. I feel like, so, I feel like under this, there's subtext within what we I, said. Absolutely right, right, David. I kind of yeah. feel like okay, so since Jesse um, asked a question, which according to every logic textbook was uh, fits the definition of the loaded question. I think we should invite <laughs> Jesse on to answer that question. Or, or to kind of like defend, defend um, the claim to Gilbert's cuteness and to also kind of reconcile that with the fact that he has five total lights in the whole book. Well, as the comments, the follow-up comments to her comment, on you know, the, as the thread indicates, most people were just thinking about Jonathan Crombie, who played the actor in oh, the movie. Oh, is, so, is that what people were thinking? The actor who played the, who, who played the, the character. I'm pretty sure. That's basically... There's lots of Jonathan Crombieites out there on the, on this, on the thread and also just on the internet. So, um, if that's the, if, you'll, you, But Tim, Tim yeah. you'll understand when you watch. Oh, really? I'll be like, I get it now. Yeah, probably, yeah, I'm no probably, longer an Anne of Green probably. Gables truther. Now I'm like fully bought in. I mean, is is the nature of a truther to just state facts and then let the subtext subtext be what it is? That doesn't feel like what a truther does. No, I think that's what truthers do. Like, I mean, I think you kind of roll out with something like I'm not going to give a specific example. Uh, I'll, tr- I'll make up an example. Oh, you really think the bubonic plague happened? Huh? <laughs> You really think we landed on the moon? Uh-huh. You really think the world's Seriously, around? it's like if you ask a rhetorical question and you just kind of let it sit. So that's what I just did. Oh, really? Gilbert Blythe is the cutest boy ever and he had five lines? Huh. Yeah, but implicit in the bubonic plague example is the suggestion that it didn't happen. Well, you're, you're just stating the fact that he only had five lines. I so think, you're stating actual I, I think I'm actually... I don't know why we are talking about this. <laughs> it's completely my fault. I think what I am implying, to, I'm like, I'm going to like disrobe the rhetorical question now and the whole device is just completely lost. Sounds I know scandalous. it does sound scandalous. <laughs> it's more kind of embarrassing. Re- rhetor- <laughs> <laughs> he, he, it's, it's like the, uh, it's like the emperor yes. is what it is. It's, it's not scandalous. It's like the emperor is blind to his own foibles and he's marching down the middle of the rhetorical yes. street. And, I just wonder if part of the prerequisites for cuteness might be one never opens one's mouth. That's the rhetorical <laughs> implication. I guess it depends on what your teeth look like, but yeah. 
Let's move um, on. I feel like I've ruined that. Like I've ruined a perfectly delightful question. I love that question. I, no, I, I I think that we went on. I think we took it in the right direction. Okay. Um, Linda Linda wants to know: Has there ever been a more soul enriching book for readers of all ages than Anne Green Gables? And why not? <laughs> Which now we're starting to yes. see a trend that Jesse Brown has yes. started here. So um, do you think, I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of feel like what we have done on this podcast is discuss why this is a soul enriching book for readers of all ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe um, what we're getting from Laura, Linda there is just some, some affirmation that I wanted to just uh, uh, point out and thank her for. Yes. It is a com. Both of those are comments dressed yes. as a question, and this is what the disrobing of Tim Macintosh yeah. has revealed. <laughs> whoa, 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 hold on! No, let's go with it. Let's just let that land. I let's disrobing that land. Okay. The prepi- yes. The preposition there was important. <laughs> I know. I totally agree. To be. <laughs> It's one of those like you can't take it back unless Logan does, which he won't. Because why? To would be he? fair, though, so, we might now understand why Tim is leaning on a washing machine. That might explain. <laughs> yeah, it really might. And given my Corona hair, like if you guys could see my Corona hair, that would also. Yeah. <laughs> Christina has a question for Tim, um, and then there were some follow-ups for all of us. So we'll start with Christina's question for Tim, and then we'll then Heidi and I will respond to it as well. Um, and the question is. What other books, Tim, have surprised you and won you over as much as Anne did? It's been a joy to listen to you discover Anne and be won over by her charms. I'd love to know if other stories you read out of obligation have had that same enchanting effect. So, uh, um, Tim, go ahead. And then Heidi, go ahead. And while you guys are talking, I've got to go do something real quick. And then uh, I will respond after that if you are not sitting there silently and waiting for me. So, Tim, go ahead. So, I'm going to make this brief. Just kidding, David. Just kidding. I'm not going to make this brief. Don't make kidding. it brief. I just That's not helpful. That before you went to do your errand. The one time when I need you not to be brief. <laughs> it's verbose. I, I, thought about, I thought about this question, Heidi, for a long time, and I don't really have a great answer. I, I even scanned... So you really are going to be brief? No. Well, I'm going to give two possible examples. One of them is a book that we're actually going to read this year on Close Reads. Um, the sun also rises. And I'm a little bit, I'm kind of happy that I can give this preface to that book because I'm a little bit afraid that that book's going to scare people off because my students, when they read it, would frequently remark, nothing happens in this book, you know, because (laughs) it doesn't really seem like anything is happening in the book. And I Uh approached that book with a similar kind of mindset, like, um, nothing happens in this book. And I was in college and I was not the brightest bulb in the store. Is that the metaphor? Um, but I loved that book. I love, and I continue to love that book. I think it's an all time classic. And, um, I'll give a variation of an answer that, or, or a variation reply to that question. Um, I read a book called the Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, mm, Conrad. And I hated it. I mean, I cannot tell you how much I hated that book. It was only, it's like 75 pages and it was a slog. Mm. Every moment of it was a slog. And I wrote a paper that I actually put a lot of effort into it. And one of my beloved professors, Whit Jones, a shout out. And I'm going to actually thank Whit Jones on the air because he gave me an F 
and I deserved it. It was a bomb of paper. And I went back to him and I was like, Hey, um, what? And he gave me an opportunity to re to rewrite it, you know, with some stipulations. I got a D the next time. Like that's how badly I did on the essay. Um, but it woke me up. I was like, Oh wow, I'm right. I'm trying to like summarize an entire book in a book of, in a four page essay of literary criticism. And it's one of the most complex books, you know, that mm -hmm. like we still read that's over a hundred years old. Those are the best examples that I could come up with, Heidi. Do you, do okay. you have any examples? Well, I have a follow-up okay. question to your examples. So the question was, <laughs> what books have you read that you thought you weren't going to like, but then you did? Yeah. And then you answered it with a book that you thought you were going to like, but you hated. So, oh no, sorry, I set it up wrong. I thought okay. I was gonna, I thought I was gonna hate The Sun Also Rises, and I loved it. I must, no, have, I but set I it mean, up wrong. Heart of Darkness. Yeah, I. Oh, What's I forgot the, the end second, of that story. I'm so sorry. I forgot the second yeah. part of it. This is like being a terrible commentator. Well, that's um, why you have such you know helpful colleagues. Thank you very much. You're, there's David. I, I, there's David. You're, you're, you're a playwright. David <laughs> fished him out of this. He's lost in the he's lost in the laundry room somewhere. He's like off the rails. It was definitely Heidi White that fished you out of this. And also, <laughs> everybody should know that David's errand he had to run was getting food. <laughs> So. Oh yeah, no, it's very true. My <laughs> blood sugar like crashed. Yeah. Oh wow! I hadn't I haven't eaten anything today because I've been busy, and I'm sitting here talking, and all of a sudden I was like, "Whoa!" I don't know if I can see. I mean, it wasn't like that bad, mm -hmm. but it was. I definitely don't know if I'm going to make it through the next hour at a high energy pace, which this podcast seems like it's going to demand of me if I don't go get some supplies. No, oh, you so, needed that, and now you're going to nibble I, on like three bites, and that's going to really help. <laughs> No, I went and got David's I, in the David's in the coronavirus mindset. It's not food he got. It's not food. It's supplies. No. <laughs> I got supplies for the long journey underground. I'm having the do best time you on this not? Podcast. What do you normally call the food that you bring with food. you? Food. You call it food, or you get particular with it. I got myself even lasagna. when you're podcasting. Even when you're podcasting, you go with the specifics. Tim, Tim. My vegetable lasagna. I, I took a little time to warm up my vegetable lasagna. Tim, and what I this is revealing is that some of us are poets and some of us aren't. So can I hear the rest of this Heart of Darkness story? So I returned after <laughs> several years of, of basically using Heart of Darkness as a synonym for just like crappy, like literary snob writing and i returned to it because i'll be honest i had to teach it for school i had to teach it at gutenberg and i actually fought for it to be taught at gutenberg because i kind of like recognized that it spoke to colonialism and like our curriculum just like wasn't didn't have like a strong kind of representation of, kind of like the effects of colonialism in literature and so i reread it and i was like oh gosh what have i done this is a really good book. It still huh. kind of makes me want to pull my hair out because it's so frustrating to read, but I actually enjoyed it. And I got to admit, it's a really, really fine book. Hmm. That's the best so I can wait, do. Okay, so, so the I conclusion is Heart of Darkness is good? Heart mm -hmm. of Darkness is good. Heart That's of Darkness good. might even be worth reading on close reads. But I think we would need to kind of bracket it or bookend it with a couple of like, <laughs> just really pleasant reads. 
sun maybe the sun also rises and uh blood meridian oh gosh oh my gosh <laughs> Mo- how, Moby Dick. how did you guys lose half your listenership <laughs> let me tell you it was oh. the summer of blood meridian moby dick and heart of darkness <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about a dank place where you need supplies. <laughs> Heidi, what about you? What, what's a book that you uh, that you were enchanted by that you thought was going to be uh, perhaps not as enchanting? Well, I have two. And one is The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Oh! I loved that book. And I, I, I mean, we talked about this quite a bit when we were recording the podcast. I'd never read spy novels before. And I've loved it. I thought it was delightful. And I, I loved a lot of, I loved the writing. It is very literary writing, but I liked the puzzle of it. Um, I liked the psychological Mm. study of it. Um, I liked the twist. It completely got me. I had no idea it was coming. Um, so I, I thought it was great. Mm. And, and that, and I love him as an author and read through. How much have you, how much have you read now? Of his books? Uh, I think I read... I mean, he's written like 35 or something. Yeah, so. and I haven't read his entire canon. I think yeah. I read six. And my favorite was A Perfect Spy, although that still depresses me every time I think about it. But <laughs> um, but I loved it. So yeah, yeah. that was that was one. And then it wasn't that I didn't expect to like it. It's that I, I didn't expect to love it. You know, I didn't think mm. I would love it. I thought like, I will read it and we'll, I'll appreciate it. And there'll yeah. be things I like about it. And mm-hmm. instead it just enthralled me from start to finish. Mm. Um, and also my second one is not close reads related. It is, and I think I've said this before, but it is Lincoln and the Bardo by George mm. Saunders. I had to read that because I was interviewing him and I didn't want to, I was really grumpy about it. Um, I thought it was going to be this like postmodern slog and I loved it like from the first page and it's, it's actually a hard novel to read. It's have you, have y'all read it? I have recommended it to you like 500 times, Tim. Um, but David, have you read Lincoln and the Bardo? I know you've read uh, George I ha- Saunders. I haven't read all. No, I haven't read all of Lincoln and the Bardo. I've read like one of those weird books where I've just read bits and pieces. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Well, it's tr- it's hard to read. It's um it's an investment. It takes about thirty pages, honestly, to even know what's going on. And so I'll just say what it is. There are ghosts in this graveyard, and it's little bits of inner monologue from these ghosts that are stuck in this graveyard and they're the premise of the novel is that abraham lincoln has lost his son willie lincoln uh which is true willie lincoln died at age 11 of a sickness in his parents house while his parents were downstairs at a state dinner that's true. And, and isn't the um, Civil War still going on when he died? It's the second year of the Civil War. Can it's you bad. imagine? Like, it's absolute, like the pressure on Lincoln, both as the president and then personally with his marriage falling apart and his child dying unexpected. The doctors had told Lincoln that Willie would recover and then he just died. Like it was, it's horrifying. And so George Saunders was like obsessed with this idea and he connected it with 
every, he said, every time that he looks at a Pieta, he thinks about this mm. moment in Lincoln's life. So he wrote a novel about it of these. And, and then one night Lincoln, and this is, this is not giving away too much of the story. It's actually helpful because the story is kind of hard to read. So one night Lincoln went to his son's grave. He was buried in a sarcophagus. So you had to go inside and inside a tiny building. And he stayed there all night, one night. Uh. And nobody knows what happened in there. Uh. And so the book is a speculation of what Lincoln was doing. And then the ghosts that are stuck in the graveyard that can't be seen are watching this happen. Oh my it's gosh. the most powerful novel I think I've read in the last probably 10 years. I was absolutely captivated by it. I yeah. loved it. It was so powerful. And I didn't want to read it at all because it was a modern story. It was just reverse chronological snobbery on my part. I yeah. thought nobody could write a book that good today. And it was so good. It's great. So hmm. anyway. Well, those are good answers. Um, we have derailed again but i guess that was an actual question so and also i asked you yeah. to derail yes so, i mean you accomplished what i what, David, how about you <clears throat> um it's a tough question because what i was i was trying to think like while you guys were talking i was trying to think about what exactly we mean by like enchanted because so like true grit for example when i first read it i did not expect it to be what it was right and I like Western stories, but the the degree to which I found her voice, like the the narrator's voice, enchanting, was really surprising to me. You know, the, it was it was it was a different book than what I expected. So you know, now I love it, but back when I read it the first time, I kind of it wasn't that I thought I was going to dislike it though. So you know, what do we mean by more enchanting than we thought it was going to be? Um, recently, also related to Abraham Lincoln, actually, I've talked about it a lot, but uh, Morris Manning's collection of poetry, Rail Splitter, I found to be... I, th I mean, I was in intrigued by the concept because it's about Abraham Lincoln. It's poems from the perspective of Abraham Lincoln after he's been killed. But the degree to which it was enchanting to me was surprising. Mm -hmm. And then um, <clears throat> it happens to me fairly often with reading children's books to the kids. Like when I read Jonathan Rogers' series of books to the kids, the degree to which especially the, the last two books was enchanting to me, even as an adult, I think was probably was really surprising. It's not that I thought Jonathan Rogers wasn't a good writer, but sometimes you come across a book that for you as an adult, you're just completely taken by almost in the same way that your kids are. And those are kind of fun, fun, enchanting moments for a parent when you're kind of like right there along with the kids and you want to read the next chapter as much as they want to hear it. Um, so those are, those are good moments. I, you know, um, I get it. I'm kind of easily enchanted by books if I'm being honest. <laughs> so, so it's kind of a tough question. Um, Hey Heidi, if you had a dollar for every time you read Anne, what would you buy? We know I that you're up. The I love you're up this to, question. I love it. You're, love you're it. up to one thousand three hundred and eleven reads <laughs> yeah. by my by my count. So Christina Scott wants to know that. Um, well, this is a relevant question for me because of how many times I've read Anne of Green Gables, and because it was just my birthday, and so I've been thinking a lot about things I want to own, <laughs> and I <laughs> think I would buy. Um, oh man, that's such a hard question. So I would definitely buy rose bushes. That's what I would buy. I have my, uh, cause I'm gardening this year and I'm obsessed with rose bushes right now. And it turns out they're really expensive and I want them all along the border of my porch, which Tim sat on my porch before. It's a big porch. Yeah. Um, David, your, your day is coming. Um, 
and we'll see. We'll, we'll sit outside and um, make s'mores and be surrounded by rose bushes that I will buy. And because because I feel like that's a very fitting thing. And have Jack uh, quote a Shakespeare sonnet to you. Yeah, that's right. That's what happened a, to me. Yeah, that was a mm-hmm. moment. It was a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there was no smell of roses lingering in the air, which there will be in the future with all of my earnings that I will get from reading Anne of Green Gables. I would like to know where the money is coming from. Like the in gods. this in this mm-hmm. scenario, who is passing the dollar down to you for every time that you've read Anne? <clears throat> because I was thinking about it, and I was thinking that's a good deal to get a dollar every time you've read Anne. And then I thought about it and I was like, that's actually a terrible deal. Like that, the, uh, the amount of hours you have to put in to read the book for $1 is not really a great investment, except, I mean, if you're just thinking in purely financial terms. So the real question is, what would you do if you had $100 for every time you read Anne? Oh. Buy extra rose bushes? Um, no. I mean, I would... And so we're building a greenhouse... And I would spend it on that for sure. A hundred dollars. I would have so much money. You would be rich. <laughs> I I mean, I do want this to happen. <laughs> Who do we talk to? <laughs> How do we make this happen? <laughs> um, all right. Kristen Duckworth asks, is there an equivalent to Anne for Boys, a book that is universally loved and so formative to so many of us like that? Harry Potter comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But are there any other classics? Okay, but wait. Harry Potter, it's not... I think of Anne of Green Gables that its readership is overwhelmingly female. Yeah. I don't think that's that's true for Harry Harry Potter. Potter. Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean mean that it's not just boys who read Harry Potter, is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, It does seem like a lot of the. um, hmm. What do you guys think? I will propose. And I'm not going to say that it has like the same gender imbalance as I presume Anne of Green Gables, Anne of Green Gables has. I'm going to propose Old Yeller. Well, that's interesting. That had not occurred to me. I, I still think that book, there's a, there's a more equal balance. Like I know plenty of women and young women who have read that book and who love that book. Do you think... This, this is interesting. Why do you think that this is though? Because even if you think about... Uh, some of the books that people responded to um, uh, were or responded to the thread with, I guess, was say Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, um, Little Britches, Farmer Boy. Those are the answers I see a couple times here. It, those, but the, but as, as to, to your point, those books are not read by just boys. Do you think right. that that is something to to do with like that they're just the way we talk about gender, or is it a matter of the way we talk about books? That's a good question. Sorry, I stumbled through that because I, in my head, I'm like trying to think of, you know. Yeah, right. All um, these different factors. Yeah. I have a... Heidi, I think you've got an idea about this also. I wonder if it's... No, no, no. Go ahead. Please. I, I mean, I would think that the number of authors previous to the 20th century and maybe even the second half of the 20th century, like in the history of English publishing, I'm going to guess... 90 10 male to female i mean i think part of the in terms of authorship yeah and so i think part of the delight of anne of green gables is that it's not just a female protagonist it's also a female author who to my way of saying it like really one of the like 
chief delights of the book is that she captures this young female perspective. And I just don't know that there's many other books like that, like written previous to the 1960s. I mean, it's just more like it's, 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 an, it's a problem of a gender imbalance in authorship. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you get Jane Austen, Louise uh-huh. May Alcott, and, uh-huh. you know, Lucy Maud Montgomery, and there are a few others, but especially ones written for young women. You know, you, you had in the early, late 18th, you, I mean, you had the Willa Cathers and, you know, people like that, but they weren't writing really like f- specifically for young women right. or for girls. Um, um, I'm trying to think like, what about like the Penrod books? But those, I guess, are, I mean, we're not really, those aren't really politically correct anymore. But right. would, those might have been, uh, anything by Booth Tarkington, I guess, might have been um, for, for boys more. Um, <clears throat> well, I think Farmer Boy might be a lot. good one. I think so. I think there's a lot, but that because of there, there is some cultural pressure to suppress those voices that are speaking directly to the development of um, kind of the adventurous spirit of a of a boy. I've never, you mean to, you mean like today yes, there are yes. So there's you know there's plenty of room still for Anne of Green Gables, um, and you know, but there's not as much room for say that how is it Howard Pyle's version of men of iron like that? Like that was those stories, like the stories of the, of King Arthur's knights were a really big deal in our house when Jack was that. And I know you guys read a lot of cowboy stories, um, David and your house and, and those like, there are some really good books about those. And you know, who has a, ongoing list of those is martin cothran um he has this like passionate about this like extremely passionate about this um the uh, the stories for boys that have been lost um or not widely read i think old for older boys i've never talked to a man who didn't I mean wasn't absolutely captivated by Lord of the Rings when they read it as mm. like in that 12 to 15 age range including my son like Jack read them before and liked them and now at 13 almost 14 he's reading them again and he loves them there's like he's at that age that those just like they are very masculine like very masculine mm. soul kind of books and mm-hmm. women read those too I mean, everybody loves Lord of the Rings but there's something specifically geared to that the, the heroic spirit of a young man that's extremely formative. And then the other one that I've not read the whole thing of, but maybe you all have, is The Yearling. Um, I think a lot of young men around the same age that I've talked to, I've never, I, I've never talked to somebody who wasn't profoundly formed by that book either, who was like, oh, meh, about The Yearling. Mm. Um, um, yeah, Adam Andrews, <clears throat> our mutual friend, is a huge yearling supporter if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. um i've never read uh, that, should, i've never read that book is that a close read I, I haven't read it i haven't read it either like is it of the quality to read on the show yeah is and is it of like the I, I, well like, like what, i said I haven't i've never thought about that before i haven't read the whole thing but i mean of people who like thoughtful christian men who read it around the young teen years have i in fact i think a hundred percent of the the guys I've talked to who've read that book say that 
you can't make it through without weeping. No kidding. Like I, I, every single person I've talked to who's read that book has said, I like wept at the, not just like teared up, but there's, and I do know the story, but I'm not going to say it. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. So anyway, consider it, or maybe you guys should read it. Yeah. 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 It's not like a seven year old boy book. It's more like a 12 year old boy book. I'm trying to think of any other books that I read at that age that that were similar. I don't know. A lot, see, the thing is that a lot of books that I can think that I keep thinking of that are kind of like Western-y books, like The Yearling, for example, like girls like cowboys and horses too. So, <laughs> right. But it's um, different. It's a different. Like you guys liked Anne Green Gables, but if you had read it at when I, like if you'd read it at eight years old, it probably wouldn't right. have had the same impact on you that it had on me. And I think that that's kind of, maybe I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that seems to be part of the soul of that question, which is like, what can captivate my son in the same way that I Mm -hmm. was captivated by Anne? Mm -hmm. Even, and I I think, you know, even boys who read Anne of Green Gables like it, but it is the soul of it's very feminine. And so, and I think that's kind of what the question's getting at. And I think that there are plenty of books that, you know, Little Britches, for example, like we, I would have never read that book on my own, but we liked it and listened to all of them as a family on Audible, every single one. And there are a lot of those <laughs> after we read Little Bridges on the show. Um, and, you know, there's Jack going out with his axe, trying to chop something down to build something. But, you know, and Lucy didn't, Lucy didn't do that. You know, yeah. like, but there is something that's like boy about that idea of like building something to help your mom and mm-hmm. uh, just yeah. that. That that I think is part of so many so many of those books we're talking about. Even if girls enjoy them, yeah. And there's this desire for like to prove yourself and have adventure, even with younger boys. Like Coulter and Jeremiah are eight and seven. And the other day we were at the park, and Coulter's riding his bike around, and he's trying to find the you know the biggest hills he can ride on because he wants that little bit of adventure. And Bethany's like, you know, essentially she's doing a good natured version of you'll shoot your eye out from Christmas story. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's just like, you know, it, moms always have a little bit of that and dads too, to some extent, but moms always have a little bit of like, can't watch when their kid's doing something dangerous type thing. But you know, he, he needs that like ability to prove himself, if nothing else to prove to himself that he can do something that he's scared of doing a little bit, you know? Um, and I think sometimes that's what, I said that the soul of these books that that become the go-to books for boys because that's a big part of becoming a man is being able to overcome things you're afraid of. Well, I mean, I guess it's also true of becoming a woman, I suppose. But um, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about now that I'm thinking. No, I think that that is true. (laughs) That there's like there's there's a coming of age factor that of like overcoming, going on some kind of quest, overcoming some kind of difficulty that, that is very, very boy. Like boys are very drawn to that. Um, the journey of the soul and the, the becoming a hero kind of thing. And if, if nowadays there's not, you know, they don't have to go out and shoot a deer to become a man preview the yearling. Um, you have to, there's in some ways that's what, some ways stories can like awaken that and nourish that, even though we don't necessarily have that kind of thing in our culture the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, let's keep going here. Uh, we, 
I have lots of questions to do. Quickly, Tim, in one word, do you think you'll read the rest of this series? I only get one word. I want to say, <laughs> I mean, like I, we all have like lists. We have, I mean, I have, my list is so long of books that I want to read. Do you think that it will go into the top 200 of the books that you will read? Yes. Okay. Okay. Aaron wants to know, has a, has a good question here that we need to spend some time thinking about. She And she says this, so some literary characters are truly transcendent and Anne is one of them. By transcendent, I mean that they profoundly change those around them in a positive way. They change other characters and the reader and they have a lasting effect on literature as a whole. Their goodness transcends their literary realm. Some th- examples I can think of besides Anne are the Bishop and Les Mis, Aslan, of course, and I'm sure there are a bunch I just can't think of as I type this. So here's my question, or really more of a point of discussion because I don't know that of, if the how of this is answerable. But she says, how is it that authors can write such transcendent characters so well? What is it about the craft that allows an author to dream up a human being who can blow us away and edify a story so meaningfully? I mean, these authors are generally not remembered for their own virtue necessarily. So what do they tap into in order to create such virtuous characters? This maybe isn't a question that can be really answered, but would love to hear your thoughts on it. Tim, as a playwright, we'll start with you because in theory anyway you are trying to create characters that are truly transcendent, even, you know, at least as at least that's the goal, right? So there's this question of how do authors do this? Like, what is it about the craft that allows it to happen? Um, this is a really interesting meta question mm. in some ways. So I'm, I'm curious what you think about how, what you think about this, because when you set out to write, is that even, is that, I mean, like, oh, I say you said that's something you would try to do, but um, is it something you actually try to do or is it something that you have as like this thing you'd love to do that is an overarching goal, but you can't spend all your time thinking about it in that way? Does that make sense? What, what, I'm, what I'm asking? I think so. I think so. Or do, you, or do you actually like on your goal for your play, do you actually in your head or on a piece of paper or whatever think, I need to create a character that is truly transcendent? Mm, I think that, I don't know. For me, if I set out with that aim... I don't know. That seems like an Icarus goal, like just <laughs> right, yeah. too high, too close to the yeah. sun. Right. Yeah. And I, how can you, how can anyone think of themselves as someone who's capable of doing that yeah. from the, the get go? Right. I, I will tell you what I think, why I think Lucy Maud Montgomery succeeded so wildly in this book is because first the biggest obstacle that faced her is like the biggest obstacle that faces every writer is that you have way too much freedom. You can say anything. You have a blank piece of paper and you can write anything in the world. And that is the most debilitating thing because what you really need is you need limits and you almost need like the harsher the limit, the better the book. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. to, by comparison, we've been talking about crime and punishment. It's a 700 page book. It's only talking about one thing and it's talking about it over and over and over and over and it, and it the complexity like comes from blossoms up from the realism of that book but it's like Raskolnikov obsessed with uh either committing a murder or trying to get away with it or understanding why he did it you know and that's what the book is about 700 pages and i think that's what like Anne of Green Gables is so good because she, Lucy Maud Montgomery cut away all the stuff that did not belong in the book so that it's just focusing on Anne, this character, this beautifully drawn character. And 
all of the things that Lucy Maud Montgomery does not report upon in Avonlea, under the roof of Green Gables, at the school, at church, like she doesn't report on, she only reports on this like, this like really specific Mm. character and everything else is cut. Mm. That's not a terribly romantic answer, but I think that's like, that's the craft answer. Mm. That's interesting. Heidi, what do you think? Heidi um, regrets to inform us that she has gone to fetch supplies. Sorry, guys. Were you fetching supplies? No, my microphone or my computer connected to Jack's AirPods for a minute. (laughs) And so all of a sudden, Jack is listening to close the unedited close reads. Yeah, I was like, I wonder if Jack White is now representing the White family. <laughs> Maybe we should get his answer to this question. Um, so I will need a reminder. Oh, is it the transcendent characters question? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the idea of, you know, this is a very interesting meta craft question. So how is it that authors are able to dream up a human being who can blow us away and edify a story so meaningfully? Right. Yeah. I, I have no idea. <laughs> think that this is such a good question and it's I've been thinking about it this I loved this question I've been thinking about it for a couple of days and I mean I have some like Tim some ideas on the subject but I really have no idea and I I think that some maybe some speculation is that Lucy Maud Montgomery crafted Anne to be um a kind of a tiny world that represented the way that she thinks that we can engage in life as um, Mm. an unfolding experience of becoming and engaging in Mm. goodness, truth, and beauty. And, and that in some ways, Anne is, uh, she's, she's fully human, but she's also a vessel for kind of all of the, the, um, rich experiences of human life. And, Hmm. and that is a transcendent thing. And, and many of the characters that we know and love in novels uh, are like that too, even in harder novels to read, like Raskolnikov is like that, right? Like he's a very transcendent character for a very different reason. Um, But it all goes to that intense engagement with a fully human life. Um, And kind of a mirror back to the reader of what it could be like to live like that and an invitation to, to the, to the deeper things of life. Um, Mm. And, and I think that we respond to that and, and the way we respond to that is almost always through an experience with art. Um, It's not, you know, a, it's the unfolding narrative this, that we encounter through music or painting or um, through our own sufferings and joys and and through the stories that we read um, and encounter in other people that kind of opens us up to that transcendent experience. Um, and there are certain characters that invite us to it. But why one and not the other? You know, another one of the questions on the thread I kept connecting in my mind, which is, how do I get my kids to love this book? Like, I love it. You know, I read it to them and they didn't really like it that much. And 
and and so that's why I say to a certain extent I don't have any idea because there's sometimes that happens to to somebody through Anne and another time it's through somebody else and and another character, another story, and there's no telling. That's why. That's probably why we need so many stories and so much art because there's no telling what's going to be, who's going to be that character that unlocks that transcendent experience in me. Mm. Um, mm. So I'm not. That's where I get kind of the mystery of it overwhelms me. That I'm like, I don't know, because for some people it's going to be Anne, for some people it's going to be somebody else. So just keep writing and keep reading, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what Aaron's talking about is also called talent. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, like, I think one of the things, like, great writers, it, the ability to create people comes from seeing the world in a specific way, like seeing the poetry at work in the world, um, being able to create characters and interactions that are believable and interesting at the same time. Um, that's like a key part of it, and then you know that people that are res- that that respond to what's going on around them in a way that is um, both interesting and believable. This you know at the same time, um, and like that's it. There is a sort of mysterious, uncalculable uh, talent that that goes into being able to create characters like this. Like I don't think you can teach a kid like. So this is kind of my problem with one of my problems with most uh, creative writing programs, like curricula or whatever, that, that basically what the idea is, is you give them these, these, these ways of creating all this detail for characters, and then you give them ways of creating plot, and then they're supposed to put it all together like it's a puzzle... And then that's supposed to be a good story. But like, what's a good story is that there's a soul at the heart of the story. Mm-hmm. And that soul is both talent and instinct. Mm-hmm. And like, that's, that's just practice. And so the, the, while those tools are useful, um, like to suggest that that's what stories are, is for a writer is not the way I think the approach should be done. But that's a different conversation for a different day. And there's just like, there, there's just a talent that gets developed over time. And certain writers just have the ability to see the world in a certain way and then put that into a certain to, into language that the rest of the world also can find appealing. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the sort of, you know, you, but you don't always know what people are going to find appealing. Like think about a book, like, uh, have you guys read, uh, uh, Stoner, I think by John Williams. No, no. So this is a book, like a mid-century book written in the sixties or something like that. And it's having this huge moment right now. And like a lot of books, it, it's this very well-written book uh, that kind of went undetected, you know, unknown at the time. And now people are coming back to it uh, thanks to the New York Review of Books and people are going, this book is genius. And so there's this, you know, you don't always know why a specific book catches on in a specific moment. And there's been lots of great books that have been lost to history. So there's a sort of mysteriousness about why certain characters in certain books connect with people at a certain time that allow it to, you know, become well-known or become big. And it's like that mystery tied with a, a uncalculable gifting that I think plays into that as well. Mm. Um, that's why not just anybody can write truly transcendent characters. It's kind of like by definition, why they're su- why they surprise us and delight us. If all characters in every book were that sort of quote transcendent, they wouldn't be as delightful to us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like why you can't eat ice cream every day. 
Right. They, I mean, that's can, why there's one but... Michael Jordan, as we all, all us sports mm. fans know. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's masters of the craft and they, they can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's keep going here. Unless Tim, did you want to add anything no, else now that no. Heidi and I have spoken? No. Um, okay. Nicole says, can anyone be or become a kindred spirit or do people have to kind of be born a kindred spirit? As the series continues, I was surprised by the wide variety of people and bestows the title kindred spirit. The conclusion I drew was that Anne creates kindred spirits wherever she goes and grows to love all sorts of people, even folks she wasn't a fan of initially. So do you think this is the idea that Montgomery is supporting or are there particular people who Anne discovers to be kindred spirits and those who aren't? I think, I think it's both. I think that she thought, I think one of, one of the journeys that Anne goes on is she thinks that she's just going to find these kind of people. Um, and, and they're going to be special people. And then as she grows and matures, that that certainly happens. There are special people that she encounters and forms a relationship with people that are closer to her, people who think like her or teach her something. And then there's just regular people that she uh, kind of gains the eyes to see them. Like, and I think Miss Barry, Miss Josephine yeah. Barry is one of those people in this particular book. Um, mm-hmm. And she's the one who makes Anne say, kindred spirits are not as rare as I thought. Um, and I, I, so I think one of the messages is, uh, and I don't want to say moral. I really just mean one of the things that she's, that Montgomery is highlighting here is, is the Imago Dei. I don't know if she put it like that, but that yeah. there's, there's something to love about everybody. And that part of being part of Anne's, you know, awakening and becoming virtuous is learning to see that, um, in everyone that she encounters. Hmm. So I do think it's both. Hmm. Tim, I can't, I can't improve on that answer. Mary asks, how do you know how much to let an imagination run away with a child and the how to's of placing healthy boundaries around imagination? Is there a booklet somewhere? Emoji, smiling emoji. I've got my own wild imagination to contend with. And now my seven-year-old girl's imagination as well, which is absolutely lovely. I can't imagine what I'd do if she had no imagination, but there is too much at times, isn't there? I think I sound a lot like Marilla most days. Get your head out of the clouds, get your work done. And while I'm at, there's a moral value stuck up the end of this, stuck on the statement. When did I become stodgy? That last question is rhetorical. But why don't we try answering the last question and just maybe we can create a narrative for Mary Nelson's stodginess. Well, Mary, I think, a lot of it, I think a lot of it started when Mary started shopping at Costco instead mm. of, I, I don't know, I give up. Uh-huh. I, I was going to try to like uh, come up with Aldi. something. <laughs> yeah, right, right. As soon as you try, start buying in bulk, that's when the stodginess that's when Yeah, that's when it happens. <laughs> and literally everybody, who, literally everybody who's listening is like, hey, uh, that's me. As the, as they walk through Costco. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Are people going to Costco still right now with the quarantine? I guess they probably yeah, are. Yeah, but now but you in- have to wear a mask. And so I'm not going anymore. <laughs> Is that a style thing? You're just like, I refuse to wear masks in public? No, I just think, well, it doesn't matter what I think, but I... <laughs> <laughs> Do we want? Does anyone want to talk about uh, the contending with the wild imagination of children? No, I don't think we contend with it at all. Zero percent. I think that it is. It should. It's. It, I don't think we should place any. Um, I don't think we should resist a child's imagination. 
I think that it's super important. It sounds like this is what Mary is doing with her daughter. The point of, you know, there were lots of questions on the thread, which I loved uh, saying the same thing, which is as a child, I was Anne and now I feel like I relate more to Marilla. I don't know what I do but, about that. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that it's just part <laughs> Just keep of, reading, Anne. Yes, exactly. I think that's exactly right. I do think that kids you know, shouldn't just go wander about as lonely as a cloud to quote, um, Wordsworth and, um, and not do their math or pick up their room or help with the chores or whatever. I understand I'm a mother too, that that is an important part of existing in the world is doing practical things. Um, but I also think that life is like childhood is so short and, childhood is so rich and that I think we make room for a child's imagination as much as possible. Um, and that, <laughs> and that we let them and, and we let things like the haunted wood happen to them. Right. Like that's the thing. It wasn't Marilla's scolding that taught Anne to rule her imagination. It was an excess that's brought to the golden mean, as someone else commented on the thread, which I loved. Um, hmm. That it was, it was, and it was some. It wasn't Marilla that helped her curb her imagination. It was herself. It was the natural course of life teaching her that and bringing it under um, the authority of a properly ordered soul. And that is. I think the as much as we can let that happen for our kids and not try to do it for them, the better. I had a follow-up question. I forgot what it was. Because I just talked right over you while you were talking. No, 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 no. No, it was gonna be good though. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm conf- I'm pretty sure it was a good question. Um Tim, do you want to add anything? No, I don't. I don't. Is there a booklet somewhere though? She asked it, that. Yeah, there is, and it's actually um who asked the question again? I forgot. Mary, Mary, remember Mary, Mary it's became... actually in um, the trunk in that place where the spare tire and the tools go. It's actually like kind of found its way into there. So yeah. Okay. That's where So it check is. there. Yeah, things, check have there. A, things do have a way of getting lodged back there. Yeah. You know, it's because when you go to Costco and you've just got like boxes and boxes of toilet paper and cereal and all those things, it, gets shoved you know, over. it just gets, it's just over time, enough Costco trips, you know, over time, you're becoming more and more stodgy and the book is becoming <laughs> pushing more and more underneath the, the, the floorboards of the trunk. I hope um, shaking her fist at us right, right? now. Yeah. <laughs> you people, I trusted you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, she did put it on a public page. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, Hey Tim, Tess wants to know if it's okay to unfriend a person that says they don't like this book. There's actually a, um, a booklet for that also, Tess. And that one actually, strangely enough, that um, you ha- there's that uh, kind of foot locker that you keep in the laundry room. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yep. most of the stuff that you want to keep is actually inside the... Uh, but, but the booklet actually got shoved underneath the foot locker. So there's a, there's a code book on that. But the short answer, I'll just save you the read because the booklet is a little bit dry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's a I mean there's a reason that the 
the book got pushed in the footlocker. Right, it's because not, it's not real answer, readable. The answer is yes. I thought you were going to recommend like, putting the person in the footlocker. And I, I got really oh. did. And I, and I was like, man, wow. things are getting speaking dark for of imagination. <laughs> speaking of imagination that is running away with itself. <laughs> right, That's right. Well, he's Tim, stuck in the basement. Like, I've, I you just never know. That does things but, to yeah. people. <laughs> That's true. Wait, yeah. Is there a footlocker that you're... That you're that's why you made you think of it that there's a footlocker like in the laundry room. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what I'm looking at right now. I'm looking at a stainless steel basin labeled Tartar Farm and Ranch Equipment that has a rusty uh spigot and a wicker basket for I don't know garden gloves. That's what I'm looking at. It's not a footlocker, but it's of a similarly impliable material. Well, I think we should combine the description of that thing that you just said with something I saw the other day while driving home. There was a car parked, there's this warehouse near my house, and there was a big van parked out front of it. And I thought, oh, there's a person sitting there on the passenger side. They must be waiting for something. So I didn't think anything else of it. Then an hour later, I drove back and everything was still exactly as it was. And I realized there was nobody else there. So I take a bit more of a nosy peek and I realized that it's not a real person. It's a dummy. No. What? Uh, but that not like a, not like a, not like one that's made to look like, you know, what do you call those things at like, at like a department store that has the like clothes on it? What do you call those? Yeah. It's not like uh -huh. that. This one had like facial features and stuff and like fake hair. And it was sitting, looking straight ahead in the passenger seat of this white van outside of this warehouse. Whoa. So I feel like if we take that, the thing that I saw yesterday and combine it with this basement and the thing that you just described, we have the makings of a really interesting one-act play. Uh, we yeah, do. that is Southern Gothic right there. So we do. yeah, sometimes people have those so that they can drive in the HOV lanes. HOV lanes. David, it's time for a citizen's arrest. That's, I mean, that's law breaking. Like, yeah, wearing, I, like not wearing your mask in Costco. <laughs> right. I think maybe I'll have to follow them though to be able to prove, hey. to be able to prove the, uh, then the, clap the that blue light on top of your Mercedes and make a citizen's and arrest. pull a Dwight Schrute. I want to go back uh -huh. to the fact that you think I drive a Mercedes. Uh, I, know, I planted that there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, Tess also asked another question though. She said, I'd like to go back to the first episode when Tim asked the question about Anne and Holden. It was so intriguing to me and then you guys never came back to it. It was something along the lines of who would handle each other's living situation best? Anne and Holden's world or Holden and Anne's world? Mm -hmm. Tim, please rephrase if I totally slide. No, I think the that's question. right. That's, that's how Tess. I remember the question too. <laughs> okay, so let's let you answer it then. So let's go back. You, you Now that you've read both books back to back who would handle the other characters situation better Anne and Holden or Holden and Anne's world I'm a believer that um, how do I say this there are two factors that uh, shape like a person's destiny or two forces let's say two energies one is the energy from the outside in and the other is the energy from the inside out. I think um, Holden is right on the verge of losing that energy that kind of like protects him from those outer forces that are just like overbearing and crushing. I think he's barely holding on. And I think that Anne had this incredible energy while she was at the... Um, well, she was in foster care 
And then she got planted in like circumstances that helped her flourish. So all that's my preface. And I think we should always bet on the inner energy. I'm not trying to sound woo woo. I just mean um, <laughs> like inner energy sound like, gosh, Tim, Tim's been doing Tim. like a lot of yoga lately. I don't mean like that. I just mean like, like the impulse toward goodness. If you rely on external forces to make it happen, that's a crapshoot. But a character, a person who has like the drive toward goodness and it's born from within, I think Anne has a better chance of surviving whatever, whatever it is, 1947 downtown New York City than Holden Caulfield in his present state stands at surviving Avonlea. Totally agree. Tim, well said. it took you five years to say, I don't mean to sound woo-woo. I mean, <laughs> Wait, I don't sound woo-woo on this show, do you I? You should have prefaced that five, uh, nearly five years ago when you first started coming on this podcast. Because I sound woo-woo? No, I'm just making fun. I'm just... I'm, oh, I was I'm, about to say, like, I don't... Like, I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just, you know, winding you up. I don't know. Um, successfully. I like Lisa's comment that the picture on the the thread sums up her entire relationship with boys until she met her husband. Um, And also, Tess' daughter asked a super important question that I think needs to be raised on this podcast. Amen. Um, So, Heidi, I need you to answer this one. Her daughter daughter asked... I'm reading the Raspberry Cordial chapter and uh, Tess rightly says that it's worth restating here. This is going to be one of those PSA moments, I feel like. Is being drunk the same thing as having rabies? It is such a good question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is? <laughs> yes. The same. I mean, it's nothing like having rabies, like at all, but... But it's also I, sort of I've like heard, having rabies. From what I've heard. Because <laughs> you've never had rabies before? I've never had rabies before. So See what wait. I did there? Yep. But, I mean, like... Isn't like, don't you got, I'm like, haven't you heard about people when they have too much to drink that they run around on all fours outside foaming at the mouth and barking at the moon? Isn't I mean, that kind I of like standard operating procedure? Who are you okay. hanging out with? Oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> the, fact that that, <laughs> the fact that that is someone's drunken experience doesn't surprise me. The fact that that's what you think happens when someone has rabies does surprise me. <laughs> I'm, you know what my, my rabies... Like um, PSA was Old Yeller. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Like I think point. I got everything that I know about rabies is from Old from Yeller. Old Yeller. Yeah. Well, just don't eat the bats. Um. <laughs> um. Let's see. That is see the here. best question ever. Yeah. Uh, Carol asked a really interesting question that got a little bit of conversation on the thread. She says when she read Anne of Green Gables as a girl, she assumed that Marilla and Matthew were married, were husband and wife. So why do you think Lucy Maud Montgomery made them brother and sister? And what might the further implications of that be? A couple people said that that was a little confusing. Heidi, what do you think? Well, it was pretty common um, in that day and age and earlier times for unmarried siblings to keep house together as adults because you'd in order to have a farm, uh, you really do need a man and a woman, uh, not just for gender roles, but for like the the kind of work that is required for farming requires 
you know, strong set of masculine shoulders. So um, <laughs> that's, I think that that's, it was more common. It wasn't a weird thing um, in earlier centuries. This wasn't, uh, this would have been kind of an expected thing. And I think somebody said it might even have been your dad, David. Um, but, I, and I, I think this kind of gets to the thematic heart of it is that they needed, Anne needed to come into a home with lonely people who were mm. kind of, uh, that, that she could, um, connect with and awaken from kind of a long slumber, uh, of the soul and who could love her and they can heal each other. So, um, I think that that's two reasons. Can you think of any, any books where, you know, like the secret garden, for example, you have this girl who comes in and, um, it was an old man, right? Or it was, grumpy well, old man. he's acted like an old man, but he was a widow, a widower. That's right. Okay. Yeah. But, but you don't, there's not a lot of stories where some young character comes in, some young, you know, pleasant character comes in and makes the life of two married people better. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like Heidi, for example, it's an old man or it's like a grandfather or whatever. So are, can you think of any stories where, it, where that is the scenario where it's say a married couple whose marriage isn't going well and they bring some child comes along and makes, makes things better. It doesn't work as well. Does it? Um, it does. It, there's something about an, a, a lonely adult and a lonely child connecting and, um, and healing each other. That's like just a, makes a really good story. It's a lot different to take like, you know, a broken orphan and just make it a rescue story, right? Like stick Mm. them with some happily married couple and then they, they're, everybody's fine. That's not normal. Like there's something about the, um, the idea of two lonely people or multiple lonely people kind of finding their way, uh, to learning how to love. Um, and I think that that was, part of the reason why they, Matthew and Marilla, um, like if I was writing the story, that's how I would write it too. Uh, I wouldn't make them married because then you'd have to give them like an unhappy marriage and then you're back to the gritty stuff. Right. So yeah. that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's like a degree of seriousness in like in the stakes of an unhappy marriage that are difficult for young people to totally process. Whereas you can see to like brothers and sister, a brother and sister who are just lonely. That, that that's like an easier concept for a ten year old to understand. Mm. It's much easier than understanding the, the difference between drunkenness and rabies. Yes, um, I mean, I just feel like there's a pretty big difference. But <laughs> <laughs> um, Tim, do you want to add anything to this? No. Okay. Um, okay. So. Let's see. Amanda asks, she says, I haven't read Anne as many times as Heidi, but I've read it a few times in the entire series once. And I'm wondering if this is the same for Heidi, the way that time and circumstance changes the characters that you relate to. So as a young girl and even a young mom, I related more to Anne. But reading it this time, I was much more moved by Marilla and the sadness combined with pride of her little girl growing up. Do you find that you, that, 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 that you, what did she say, identify with, with Marilla or other characters more than Anne? And Tim, I'd love to hear, well, I'll have a follow-up question for Tim after you answer that, Heidi. I still, I, I mean, I, I still identify most with Anne. Um, probably I'm in some state of arrested development when I, whenever <laughs> I read the book and earn $100. Um, <laughs> but, 
them. But I think what I think what she said is really important that as just like every good book, the characters, different characters come alive to us at different times mm-hmm. and um, are kind of endued with a new kind of mean, endowed with a new kind of meaning and, um, and level of compassion and empathy and relating. Um, and I, I, I love that that's kind of the mother's, more of the mother's experience in reading this book is to see Marilla as a human, not just as, you know, the dour moralistic woman that Anne fixes right but but she's yeah. a, a very richly drawn character and there's a lot of pathos in her and and Lucy Mon Montgomery really does a great job of characterizing her in that way so so Tim unless you want to answer that directly I've got a follow-up question for you follow-up question okay so we're, we've talked a little about about Marilla's instinct to need to moralize, you know, to feel like she has yeah. to teach Anne a lesson. But this is a book that has all kinds of adult characters who influence Anne in various ways. So there's Marilla, who her, the way she interacts with Anne obviously changes, but, but she instills some discipline. You've got Matthew, who's so compassionate and loving towards her. You've got, uh, you know, Mrs. Miss, Allen and the teachers. And, is it Miss Stacy? Uh, is that the name of the Miss Stacy, teacher? Yeah. 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 And, and then, you know, even the way she looks at Diana's parents eventually and, um, uh, Josephine Barry and yeah, yeah, Miss yeah, exactly. Lind, yep, <clears throat> yeah. So there's all these different characters, and Anne's perspective on them changes. And so I'm curious um, how you think the book ultimately wants us to think about um, the way adult influences work on children. Like, um, uh, I'm trying. Like, is the book suggesting that there is a, a approach that is best to help children grow up to be, you know, well-adjusted, uh, not arrested development people, people who are arrested developmentally. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really interesting that the person who we didn't mention is the, um, what is the, maybe you did mention her, David, uh, the wife of the pastor the new pastor that moves in. That's Mrs. Allen, right? That's Mrs. Allen. You did Mm -hmm. mention her. I think that she like does as much for Anne as anyone. And it's because of kind of like, it's just who she is, the way that she comports herself in the world. She becomes this sort of ideal for what Anne can be. Not like with regards to like, I'm going to marry a pastor. Anne is a little bit kind of like reluctant to pursue that life, but just the way that she carries herself and she comes to visit Anne after Anne has had the terrible fiasco when they come over to visit and she, you know, messed up the meal. Um, and so I wonder if Lucy Maud Montgomery is saying it has less to do with the actual instruction, although maybe Miss Stacy is a counterexample to that, has less to do with the actual instruction and it has more to do with being who you are and the way that you carry yourself in the world and sees that and, and seeks to kind of mimic that. So it's, you know, of course we have to have instructors that teach us mm-hmm. math. I love, by the way, that whenever we have to talk about sort of like a chore, I think all three of us always say something like, we have to have someone teach us math. We have to do our math. We've got to, <laughs> math has to be done. Hey, hey, hey. 
We we know we know what kind of podcast this is, <laughs> right? Well, I'm not doing it for the audience. I'm just like it just readily comes to mind. Oh, well, no, right. sure. exactly. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. That's my math guess. is like cleaning the toilets. Yes. <laughs> yes. I can't believe I just said that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of should bury my head now. Um, I think she's recommending to us ideals. Yeah. Yeah. Ideal, ideal figures. And I know like my friend, Tom, 10 years older than me, when I was growing up when I was 13, 14, 15, he drove a red Alfa Romeo spider. That was a convertible. He was so funny and so cool. And he was also like a, was a really serious Christian. And I had not seen those two things put together. Like a Christian who like, just like had, he was just so fun. And it was a, it was an, absolutely like life shifting thing. It wasn't the advice that Tom gave me though. He did give me advice and I'm sure it mattered, but it was more just like, I can be that kind of a person in the world. And I think that, I, I don't know, that's kind of my hunch about what Lucy Maud Montgomery is recommending to us. Well, I think we should, we're, on, we're running out of time here. So I want to do one more comment here. This, we didn't talk a lot about the Lady of Shalott scene, you know, kind of, we, we got into some other things. And Amy Edwards asks on the thread, she, she has a comment about it. She says, as you shouted, you moved on toward batting around if Lucy Maud Montgomery was moralizing and Anne was repenting of her imagination and wondering if maybe Anne's speech to Marilla was Lucy Maud Montgomery's voice. But I was still thinking about the reenactment of Elaine and the remarks about Tennyson's poem. I grew up reading this book like Heidi did, but haven't reread it in a long time. However, about a month ago, I studied Tennyson's poem with my kids and parsed it sort of like Anne's class did. And I started thinking about how the Lady of Shalott sits and weaves her web until finally she sets out to see the world firsthand, not through the mirror any longer, and to really live life, except she is cursed and must die. Is this the point? Is Anne turning the corner here and stepping forward into no longer fantasizing about her life, but really living it? And Anne has misunderstood at this point what it means to grow up. She thinks she has to repent of her imagination. But really, she's just moving into the more real. I never thought about this incident in this life before, probably because I just love the romance of it. The romance of the pretending and the romance of Sweet Gilbert. And also, I really didn't know Tennyson's poem much at all beyond the loving sound, loving the sound of it, all those years of my youth when I read and reread Anne. So what do you think? So Heidi, I wanted to make sure we at least touch on this scene. You talked a lot about how you, you love mm-hmm. this scene I in love the book. This scene. And, and, and so I think we should at least touch on it a little bit more than we actually did uh, on the show. So do you want to... Do you want to uh, comment on on it uh, and and what Amy's saying here? Yeah, I think she's. I I think this is one of those scenes that you can read just as a delightful part of the story, and that's perfectly fine. Or you can mm-hmm. read it with a little bit more um, of a commentary to it as she's doing, and I think that works too. Anytime you have characters, mm-hmm. I, I because of my literary training, anytime you see a character falling in water. Right. I mean, what are we all thinking? There's a baptism, there's a rebirth, there's some kind of like mm. change that's happening to this character. Um, and and so I do think that that's... I was just thinking, why doesn't she not know how to swim? That's all I was well, thinking. Well, that's a fair question. And I've always wondered... Because I, I remember reading it and being like, well, why don't you just swim? Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> um, oh, you didn't know that Canadians can't swim? <laughs> I guess I did it. It wasn't part of my education, but now I am they, older and wiser. I, 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 so. I, they live on an island. <laughs> you would think that they would know how to swim. You would think. Yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway. 
So, so I do think that there's, first of all, Montgomery loves the romantic poets, loves Tennyson, um, and loves, uh, that any kind of, this kind of poetry, which Tennyson wasn't really romantic, but he was a Victorian, but that this, this kind of like overblown imaginative telling the story, uh, idolizing and idealizing nature and love, like that was the poetry that Lucy Maud Montgomery loved. And so, um, this particular poem I think was chosen, um, on purpose because it's one of her favorites. She wrote about this in her letters. Um, and then it was, so there's a bit of a commentary on education as, as she brought up in, um, in her comment that there's, I, I love the fact that the commentary on education is you can parse and you can analyze and you can do that with this poem, with these poems, but when it comes down to it, it's still going to have a hold on children in an imaginative way. And they're going to try to make something out of it that's wholly their own. And I, I like that. I think that that's one of the things I love about this scene. And then the idea of her being carried away, like literally carried away into deep waters through her imaginative experience and then almost getting lost there. It's almost, there is almost like a death that's happening there. And then along comes this boy who is going to become a huge part of her life and she can't see it. Like she can't see that he's rescuing her from being kind of lost in the waters of over-imagination. And if you've read more of the series, you know that, that Gilbert's rival in, later book, in a later book is Anne's like romantic hero of her. Um, and, and almost the same thing happens, that she's almost carried away from the true love because she's so enamored, falsely seduced by a romantic ideal. Um, and she almost misses Gilbert completely. And, and so she keeps repeating this kind of pattern, but there is a little bit of a paradox that I find very uh, more deep than you would think, which is the, the question of, yes, you can be carried away by it, but at the same time, it's still good in itself. And so it's not a moral that she's trying. I think she's wrestling with, I think Montgomery is wrestling with that throughout her books. Like that, that there is kind of a paradox and a mystery to that, that it's not a bad thing to be carried away by your imagination. And yet you could, it, it could be a bad thing to be carried away by your imagination. I'm not sure she knows how to reconcile those things. So she puts it in kind of this mysterious way in this particular scene. Hmm. Hmm. It, well, it also thrusts, it also just brings Gilbert back into the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that way, it's kind of a turning point. Like it, it, it brings her back into him, sorry, back into focus for us as readers, which makes her response to him that much more dramatic, right? right. Because it makes him, him more appealing so that all the things you're saying about the way she almost misses him and all that can become more, you know, dramatic. Like there's more dramatic tension that, uh, that gets added to the story. Tim, do you want to add anything? No. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. That's great. Um, well, and I, I think that this is a low point for Anne. I, I love this scene, but it's also her, this, like she's mean in this scene to Gilbert. And she's, 
you know, we all find Anne so, so delightful and she is, she's wonderful, but she, she has a mean streak to her and, and it's this attachment to her romantic ideal that drives her in the lowest points of her life, um, throughout her growing up years. And, and Montgomery doesn't shy away from that, which I really like. She confronts that and she makes Anne do things that aren't right. And this particular thing is a low point for her. So I don't want, I don't think we should miss that either. Well, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> we've been, <laughs> no, it's not. It's all we have, all the time we have for the, um, do, uh, do either of you have any final thoughts because we should wrap this up. And, uh, Tim, do you want to add anything? David, I don't, I don't have a final thought about Anne of Green Gables, but I do want to do a brief advertisement for the plays, the thing, uh, Sarah Jane Bentley and I are going to record our second episode of Coriolanus, one of Shakespeare's best plays, like maybe even a top three play. Sarah Jane and I like, both huh. agree on that. And it's a play that very few people, even like Shakespeare fans, know. So we are trying to do it justice. Um, and also as an addendum to that, I, the Close Reads listenership is uh, largely female, which we're very happy about. But I, I would love if we could kind of like increase the number of male listeners. And I think that Coriolanus might be, I'm not going to say like it's an easy way in, it's a hard way in, but the sort of like warrior ethic of the main character Coriolanus there is a very masculine kind of ideal. And so watching maybe the Ray Fiennes movie of Coriolanus as a companion to the plays, the thing might be a way for some of the guys who have been um, loitering in the suburbs of close reads or the plays, the thing it might be a way for them to kind of like enter the city. We'll have to do a cowboy book. Yeah. We should do another cowboy book. <laughs> like what about I mean like I don't know Lonesome Dove it's long but Lonesome Dove might be the one maybe it's very readable though it is long though boy it's long um Tim yes I was also going to mention that you guys you and Heidi did the whole play of as you like as it. you like all five it. acts yeah yeah and yeah. all those and has that know, been before. released yet yeah they're all released so all those all those have been they're out on the place the thing oh, feed. Wonderful. So head over to, you can binge listen to Heidi and Tim talking about As You Like It, um, which, and I highly recommend you do that. As I've mentioned, this is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, maybe my favorite comedy. And so uh, it's, a, it's a good listen. You should check it out. Um, so you can head over to the Plays of Thing to subscribe. And when you're there, you should rate and review. If you want to rate and review this podcast, wherever you listen, we wouldn't complain. We'd certainly be grateful for that. Um, and then, of course, we also have the Daily Poem, which is uh, going on. Yesterday, I recorded a little uh, poem with a, with a special guest, my eight-year-old. And uh, he chose to talk about William Blake's the t- uh, Tiger, Tiger. Oh, so burning he, bright. He talked about Tiger Tiger and brought up Calvin and Hobbes. So, you know, if you are Perfect. if you are a fan of either of those things, then check out the Daily Poem. Well, I guess that's it for this episode. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here as always. Next week we will dive into Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. And again, we will talk about book one, and that will go up one week one week from today on May fifth. Heidi, Tim, it's been a pleasure talking about Anne Green Gables. Uh, 
uh, Heidi, thanks for bringing your enthusiasm. No. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you for saving that for the last moment. And Tim, thank you for bringing your... Um, I want to hear this. I don't have one. Gil, <laughs> Gil. Yeah, we can't do it. I can't. Like, I don't make have something one. out of Gilbert. If I had actually been saving enthusiasm for five weeks, then I would have thought of something for for Tim. But I just thought of enthusiasm in the spot, <laughs> and so I awesome. wasn't capable. I wasn't. It wasn't capable of coming up with something for Tim. Well, someone someone's got to give us one. Someone's got to give us Tim enthusiasm. You can't just you can't just yes, add did. the I did. Never never mind, never mind. We'll just go. Jaws of defeat. Right. Well <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time, happy reading.